Everybody and welcome to Random Trek Review. This is the podcast where we analyze, discuss, review, and randomly select Star Trek episodes. My name is Andrew, and I will be joined by my good friend Matt this week. Uh, but Matt, I am sorry to say that I am going to have to pull my kid out of your school. You're just not teaching the things that uh, I want you to teach. How dare you? How dare you pull your kid out of my <laughs> wonderful, awesome school? I'll show you. You need to start teaching some more Bajoran religion, I think. Otherwise, uh... There's just not going to be any space for them. But they're wormhole aliens, not prophets. <laughs> I feel like we could do this all day. Just an entire podcast of us bickering about what should be taught in schools. That, that could be a fun in a different form, I suppose. Indeed. Well, this is In the Hands of the Prophets, of course. And uh, this actually is the season finale of uh, season one. I had kind of forgotten that they had only done 20 episodes, which I probably shouldn't have forgotten because it wasn't really that long ago that you were talking about the exceptions to the rule where typically um, all the seasons are the same number of episodes with a handful of uh, exceptions. This is one of them. So um, why don't you recall back to uh, last podcast and uh let me know how i did on this one as well give me a rating out of five ej7 interlocks those are my favorite interlocks the ej7s they're fine interlocks they're very hard to come by that's also true yes uh now uh you did pretty well actually i was a bit surprised uh how much you got here um you mentioned that Kai Wynn was in this episode, which is correct. You mentioned uh, Keiko running the uh, the school and that there was friction uh, with, with Kai Wynn because she was not teaching uh, Bajoran religious beliefs in the school. You mentioned that there was a, bo- a boycott of the school by all the Bajoran children. And uh, you said Jake and Nog were like the only ones left, but Nog actually wasn't in it. But Jake and like a handful of humans continued to go to the school. So that's that's pretty much right. You mentioned that this was a very heavy, like, science versus religion kind of conflict in the episode, and you mentioned there was a lot of Bajoran politics in the episode. Kind of some vague things, but they're all correct. Uh, You also mentioned something about this leading into the whole story with the circle, which I don't really think is right. There was no mention of it, so you didn't really get that part. Uh, I you, you didn't get the explosion, which I think was a really major part of the episode and nothing about the murder mystery, but um, still very good. Uh, you got pretty much all the main points uh, with like sort of the main storyline. So um, I'm going to give you a score of uh, four EJ7 interlocks out of five, a pretty solid way to wrap up the second season of RTR course this is our last episode of season two so um, that means you're gonna have to wait at least a little bit because we are going to have our end of the year movie uh, bonanza as well as the second birthday um, which will come out right around uh, the end of august right august 26th Um, and then we'll start into season three come september so it'll have to wait until then to maybe potentially draw one out Um, this week though we are looking at deep space nine season one episode 20 the season finale in the Hands of the Prophets. It originally aired back on June the 20th, 1993. Its guest stars Rosalind Chow as Keiko O'Brien, Robin Christopher as Neela, 
Philip Anglum as Vedic Burial in his first appearance, and a special guest star, Louise Fletcher as Vedic Wynn, also in her first appearance. This one was written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, and it was directed by our good old friend Michael Livingston. If you did not see this one or it's been a while, here is a brief synopsis on what happens in the episode. Keiko O'Brien is in the middle of a riveting lesson on the scientific nature of the Bajoran wormhole when Vedic Wind shows up unannounced to sit in on the lecture. It doesn't take very long before the Vedic brings up concerns that Bajoran religion is not being taught in conjunction with the wormhole, as that is where the prophets reside. Keiko stands firm that she should only teach facts in her classroom, and this leads to a major backlash from Bajorans that are living on the station, going so far as to pull their children out of the school. Things get worse when a homemade bomb blows up the school, and this escalates the situation to riot levels on the promenade. Vedic Baral decides to visit the station and to stand with the emissary in an act of solidarity, as well as to attempt to cool off some of the tensions. He is halfway through a riveting speech when he is narrowly almost assassinated by O'Brien's assistant Neela, who we have only seen in this episode. Despite saying that she acted alone, the command staff easily recognizes that Vedic Wynn is the one who is pulling the strings from the shadows, and that this is most certainly not the last that they will see or hear from her. All right, Matt, let's uh, take a little quick uh, overall impression of this particular episode. And this is kind of in that gray range where you may remember when you first watched it, or it was probably a little bit before you got really dug into Deep Space Nine. Do you have any memories of In the Hands of the Prophets? Well, here, it's, there's kind of an interesting uh, story here. So when I was very young, I had this friend who lived out in the boondocks and he got like, you know, two channels on his TV and he really liked Star Trek. And so he kind of relied on me to like record the episodes on VHS tapes and then give them to him so he could watch them. Right around, I want to say like maybe the second or third season of Deep Space Nine, the tables got turned because he got a satellite dish. And so he got like a bazillion different channels and he like Star Trek was on like like eight times a day. And so he started taping like the, the old Deep Space Nine reruns for the first and second season. And then I would end up borrowing those from him. And I feel like the first time I watched that was on one of those tapes, because during the first and second season of Deep Space Nine, I, I was actually thinking about this. And I feel like it was on at a really awkward time that was really hard for me to watch it like at like nine o'clock on a weeknight. So I feel like I only maybe watched like 50% of them the first time they aired, but I was able to, to catch up a little bit shortly after because this friend of mine had a satellite dish. So I feel like this episode was, that was when I first saw it. So it wouldn't have been during the original run, but it would have been like maybe a year or two or like maybe three years after. So it's hard for me to kind of place some of those early episodes because i just saw them all in this crazy weird order yeah it must be weird for our younger listeners to think about a time <laughs> where you actually had to be at your tv on a specific day at a specific time in order to see it um and yeah for people like you and i like you also had to have the channel because i remember that when voyager came out i didn't have upn and then eventually, I think Global, which is another station, picked it up and you could watch it on there, but it wasn't necessarily the same ones and things. Um, and yeah, it wasn't really unheard of to miss episodes completely, especially if 
you you know had a party to go to or a baseball game or something you'd miss an episode and then you'd either hope that it would show back up on reruns and you'd catch it or you wouldn't see it till years later when city when city tv used to air the next generation ones they'd air it like in prime time during the week and then i think they would air it again on the weekend at some other time so like basically i would have like two chances to watch it and that was it right yes and i actually remember that like space channel in canada used to do that as well they would have they would run whatever day it was and then the next day it was almost like a second chance at it and then by the time that we had gotten to like the early to mid 90s then people started to have the vcrs that could tape based on like the timers but a lot of times you know you'd set it all up and then you'd come back and you'd it would have like taped over it or it never restarted recording and things. Cause I remember that happening too. getting home, being so excited, throwing it in, getting halfway through and then it cutting off or the tape runs out or your kid's sister tapes over it. So it was very tumultuous times back then when you didn't know yeah, when stuff was going to be on and, and if you'd be able to see it. And then, yeah, there was a lot of that underhand dealing that you're talking about where you're trading old tapes and there's the rumors that some would be true and some wouldn't be true. And there'd be, uh, you know, schoolyard gossip on, uh, on episodes. And if you didn't see it, you'd be out of the loop. It was interesting times. Did you ever have one of those mishaps where like, you know, there was like that little tab that if you didn't have, like if that tab wasn't covered up, it wouldn't record. Yes. Did you ever yeah, have one of those? Lots of times. <laughs> The, that was like a that was like a moment of just sheer terror when you went to like hit the record button and it's like nope not gonna record and you pull the tape out and you're like no the tab is gone <laughs> yeah that was like the little security you're like scrambling for the scotch tape and the other thing I think too about <laughs> when TV shows had time slots and that was all the rage was that you could sync a show by its time slot or you could save a show by its time slot I remember that Voyager and Deep Space Nine I think they were always on Friday nights which was not a very sought after um, time slot because everybody's goes out and things like that. Um, and then Voyager bounced around. It was on Monday nights. I think it was on Wednesday nights at certain points, but um, all at different times. So I think that at one point Voyager was on at six o'clock on Wednesdays or something. And I mean, that is really a tough time slot to be in. The best time slots were always kind of like the seven o'clock, eight o'clock. Uh, Wednesday, Thursday night, that was kind of always the sought after spots. And so it's interesting to kind of, you know, look back on that now because it seems so ridiculous, but it was just the way of the world, right? That's right. Yep. It was a much different uh, time for television. That is for sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing with this episode and the first thing that kind of uh, came to my mind when I was watching it was that, man, it's just too bad that none of the stuff from these old shows from the 90s have any relevance today, eh? <laughs> i'm watching this and i mean i feel like you could pretty much put this episode in any point in any time in human history and it would have at least some sense of connection to the people living of that time don't you think well yeah this is a very timeless uh debate that we're going to be talking about here today the other thing that i feel about this and the thing that i thought of as i was watching it and just kind of my general impression is is that episodes like this makes Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard just suck, basically. <laughs> and I've been a defender of both of those shows, but 
when I look at like, you know, Picard and, and Star Trek Discovery, they're always saying stuff like, oh, this is about Brexit and it's about, you know, post-Trump America and it's about Black Lives Matter. And then you watch the shows and it's kind of like, I don't see it or I don't, maybe I'm not smart enough to get it or, or something. It's very subtle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's either like not there at all or it's like the Star Trek Discovery thing when they were going to do the thing about technology. It was like A to B, right? You know, technology's bad. The got the main villain is made of technology. So technology is represented by this guy, you know, like it's too simple in a way. This kind of stuff in this particular episode is just done so beautifully and so perfectly. And the way that they kind of tie in like, you know, human things is just so wonderfully done. So, I mean, just a little bit on the background and the development, um, the original idea and this, I don't know about you, but this really kind of, scratches me where I itch was they had an original idea that the final episode of this season was going to be a next generation deep space nine crossover episode where Picard and Cisco along with the two different crews would team up and fight off some Cardassians. Now, what are your thoughts on an episode like that? Well, it's a good idea in theory. Um, although it's kind of a simplistic kind of thing where it's like, Oh yeah, we're just going to team up and fight off some Cardassians. I mean, I, I, it's hard to judge without knowing more details about what's going to be the setup. How, what are these Cardassians doing that's so bad? Why are the crews sort of in the same place at the same time? I mean, it's a pretty interesting... I, I never knew this, actually. It's an interesting possibility in some alternate universe that maybe this actually happened. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you just drool over, really. I think that this could have been amazing. It also could have been cheesy, but... Um, I think that if it was done right and if it had done, been done with the same amount of care that they put into the episode that we got, I think it could have been really good. And it would have been hard to kind of deal with that many characters, you know, 10, 15 characters and all have them have something to do. But it could have been really, really good. It's possible. I mean, I guess we'll never know. No, and I guess what they wanted to do was they wanted to separate the two series and they didn't want to always have to rely on the Enterprise and the Next Generation crew for the big moments in, in this Deep Space Nine stuff. So what they came up with was they were intending to kind of bookend Emissary, um, which we also reviewed, oddly enough, um, this season, uh, by bringing back the whole Bajoran religion and, and kind of using it as a center point to, you know, kind of tie the season together. Yeah, why not? I mean, why not go back to what they started with? Emissary was, was pretty good, and I think the Bajoran religion was a big part of that. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense for them to kind of say, okay, let's let's sort of wrap up with this, going back to this theme of religion, and we'll see how where it goes uh, going forward. Yeah, now the other thing that they ended up having to kind of do because of this is that it didn't really lend itself very well for a big cliffhanger which at this stage of the game had become kind of a Star Trek staple. Basically, after Best of Both Worlds, it became, you know, every year you wanted to, to really leave on a high note to make people want to come back for the next season. But Michael Piller and some of the other higher-ups kind of thought that at this point it was starting to become a bit overused. Um, it seemed almost obligatory, and it always ended up being more uh, expensive. So they decided to kind of go with more of a suspenseful 
kind of leering ending instead, making you wonder what the future is going to hold for the Bajoran religion side of things. Not necessarily that the station is in danger or anything, but what's going to happen with the leaders of the Bajoran religion as time goes on. Do you think that it works in that way, or do you think it just feels like a regular episode? I would tend to lean that it kind of felt like more of a regular episode, because I don't think... I just don't think that they emphasize this whole lead up to the election of the new Kai quite enough. It didn't, they didn't make it seem like it was that big of a deal. At least I didn't think so. And so when they kind of leave off where we've got like Barail on one hand and Opaka or not, sorry, open on Opaka, Win on the other hand and like set up this kind of political duel between them leading up to the election of the next Kai, I just felt like there wasn't, it wasn't power, like it wasn't enough there to it that it made me feel like, ooh, what's going to happen next? Right, yeah. I mean, I guess we do eventually get that because Wynn eventually does become the Kai, but it's it's dragged out over a long period of time. This is more just the foreshadowing almost. The other really interesting thing about this, and I, I'd never had connected this, but it, it makes a lot of sense after I was reading about it, um, is that essentially that this is based off of 15th, 16th century Catholicism, when the Pope was basically a political figure that was was voted in and ha- had a lot more religion, political power. And after I started reading a little bit about it, because I'm, I'm not a big historian in Catholicism or anything, but once I started reading it, I recognized like, oh, that is the exact situation that they're painting here. And I mean, the, the, the Kai or, is just the Pope and the Bajorans are basically Catholics. Did you know that? And did you kind of piece that together before reading it? No, I had no idea. My my religious history is quite rusty, perhaps even non-existent, so I had no idea. But I think it's cool when they do base some of these stories on actual history because, uh, you know, so we, the human civilization has some pretty wild and pretty interesting uh, stories to be retold in space. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, I guess the other thing that we should probably mention um, is, have you ever seen the 1960 movie Inherit the Wind? Can't say that I have, no. It basically is this episode. A lot of people even have gone so far as to say this episode is just a straight ripoff of the film Inherit the Wind. Um, It is about evolution instead of... uh, Bajoran prophets but um, essentially it's the same idea the evolution in the school and the argument and there's lots of courtroom drama y kind of stuff I think that that's the best thing to do is to to get good ideas to to take things from our everyday world um, especially things like you know evolution being taught in schools and you know religion in schools and secular schools and because I mean that's not across the board the same depending on where you go and so uh, you know even what 20 years ago this is still holds true today so yeah I think that uh, even if it's a little bit of a of taking from it I think that it still works really well all right Matt we have a lot to talk about here plot wise uh, there's a lot of juicy points that we want to get into um, but before we do that let's I guess uh, start with the juiciest thing which is the uh, Jumja sticks that Keiko and Miles are shopping for at the beginning of uh, of this episode. Wasn't it mostly Miles that was shopping for them? Keiko kind of does seem like one of those people that would be, you know, like all into like the yoga and Pilates. She wouldn't, she'd only want to eat healthy foods and stuff. 
And Miles definitely seems like the snacker and the cold beer type, doesn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's totally down for drum sticks and cold pint. Now, when uh, Star Trek had the Star Trek experience, remember they had Deep Space Nine and they had all the, you know, the events and things like that in Las Vegas. Did you ever go? Oh, I never went, but I, I wanted to more than anything for, I mean, that I was still like a teenager when that came out. So it wasn't really practical for me to just like hop on a plane to Vegas. Yeah, I can't remember when it closed down, but I do wonder if they had Junga sticks there to buy. Oh, I'm sure they did. They had all kinds of crazy stuff from what I, uh, from what I understand. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a little bit too bad. It, was, it came out just before YouTube and all those things became really popular. So it is kind of hard to find stuff. Uh, pictures and videos from that time but when you do it looks like it was absolutely amazing i imagine that it was yeah uh, but anyway we start off here with keiko and miles i kind of find that keiko's acting here was really off like i know a lot of people don't really love keiko and she gets a lot of flack for her acting but here is one of the times that i really kind of see it especially when with her interactions with miles did you notice that or no I actually thought it was really funny because Miles is like mowing down on his Jumja stick and she's giving him the old, you shouldn't eat that, Miles. It's bad for you. It's like the Everybody Loves Raymond special. Yeah, exactly. I actually thought that was kind of a funny scene. I didn't really notice any any substandard acting. Okay, well, I, I didn't think she was great there, but I did think that she was good when she was doing the lesson. And of course, she's happened to be t teaching about the wormhole, how it works, how it's stable, where it goes. Um, I thought that part was all really good. And then Vedic Wynn shows up. And this is our very first Wynn scene that we see. Now, I mean, I don't really think that, uh, you know, random people can just wander into classrooms and sit in on lectures and stuff without signing in or whatever. But she decides that she's going to, you know, sit in on this class of course, it's not very long before she has to interject and pipe in that it's the prophets and everything else. Is this a good introduction to a character that I mean, is it safe to say that she's the biggest villain or this, you know, if she's not one, she's one A. When she walked into the school, I wrote down, ugh, with like five U's <laughs> because she just, oh, she's just so, she's so easy to dislike. I think this is like the perfect way to introduce Kai Wynn. Getting under your skin straight away. Exactly. Yeah, she just waltzes in, says, "Hey, I'm just gonna like sit here and watch," and then like not two minutes later, tells tells Keiko why everything that she's saying is completely wrong. And it's just like, oh, I just grinds your your gears so badly right away. So, uh, is there any point in me asking you if you are Team Win or Team Keiko, or is that an obvious question? Well, if we're talking characters, like which one do I? prefer to side with like i i can't stand vedic slash kai win now as far as the debate whether it's like should we be teaching science or should we be teaching religion i wrote down in my notes how do you sort it out how do you sort it out like this is such this is like a uh, an age-old debate of like who what what should we be teaching well i mean it's it's interesting because you and i are canadian and we live in one of the very few provinces where the public funds public school and Catholic school. And it is a very touchy subject for some because, you know, why doesn't the government fund a Jewish school? And why don't they fund every other religion that uh, exists? Why is it they only fund one particular one? Um, and I mean, that's basically this, right? Is that you can either have 
a public school where they kind of teach a little bit of everything, or you can have a religious specific school, but it's really hard to kind of blend the two together. And I kind of see more on Keiko's side and Keiko is more Star Trek side, really, which is just teaching the basic facts, the things that we know for sure, 100%. And then when, you know, she's definitely trying to interject her policies into the school, which I don't know that it's even necessary because couldn't they just teach that in like a Sunday school or like at the temple? Like it seems like that would make the most sense to me. It's such a deep space nine thing to do, right? Right. You, you dig up, you think, sit down and you say, okay, what are some of like the most age old like conflicts between groups of people that are basically impossible to solve? And they write down their list and they pick out the ones that they think will be the most dramatic. And I think this is probably one of them. And they write an episode about it. It makes for great television. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that I like a lot is that it's not really something that is solvable. With The Next Generation, you always get episodes where there is a problem. Everybody works together and then they solve it. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. You could spend an entire series dealing with this particular thing, you're never going to get the science people to start teaching the religion and you're never going to get the religious people to buy 100% into the science. So you're always going to be stuck just kind of batting it back and forth. It almost becomes like ping pong in the sense that there really isn't any way to convince the other people that you're right. And so there, there is no solution. Exactly. And that's the beauty of it. You know, this conflict, I mean, it it doesn't manifest itself so uh, clearly as it does here, but this uh, the whole like religion versus secularism, it comes up continuously throughout the series. Now, did you find when everybody was kind of talking in circles, stating their points and then reiterating, did you think that that felt realistic or did you find that it kind of got annoying and, and ran its course a little bit? Because there is a lot of scenes where everybody's making their point and then nothing's getting solved. It just kind of goes in circles in a way. Did you think that that fit? Or do you think that it was kind of annoying to deal with? Well, like I said, I mean, this is a this is something that we may never as human beings fully get past. And so it doesn't, it's, it's not out of place for them to be kind of talking and walking in circles and not ever really coming to a resolution. I guess the other thing that's kind of interesting and, and also doesn't come to a re resolution is the idea that the schools are just a metaphor for the Federation and the Bajor relationship. Do you think that that is true? And do you think that that is a, a connection or assumption? Um, I don't you know. That's an interesting um, way of looking at it. But I mean, I guess you're right that the Federation is sort of a, generally a secular kind of organization you don't really hear a lot about religion when it comes to the federation and bejor is like the complete opposite so um i mean i guess that's a fair comparison to make uh yeah and, and, and it, i mean in terms of the show do you think that it's one of the big reasons why they are i mean they don't join the federation not in the, the, the run of the show anyway is that just too big of a barrier to overcome well they were going to but then cisco just like told them not to and like, oh okay well i guess we're not joining then so i i don't know i mean i think maybe that's something that you know eventually you come i i would assume that of the hundreds of worlds in the federation that there are at least a few that are still very religious and so i feel like at some point they would be able to get past it that's true and i think that one of the interesting things if we are going to kind of stick on that same theme line is that kira is such a star trek character and such a strong Star Trek character, but she never 
goes against her religion. She's almost kind of the intermediary in the sense that she has almost all of the Star Trek characteristic and virtues that we all know and love and care about, but she's also deeply religious. Um, and even in this scenario where you would think that she would stick with the station, with Keiko, with that, she doesn't. She always, always, always goes with the side of her religion. Do you think that this was kind of meant to be she could be that bridge between the two different worlds. It's certainly possible that they maybe saw her as being the possible bridge. It, it, you're definitely right that she's always, she, she never sort of goes against the religion, which I always thought was kind of an interesting part of her character because you always wonder like, how far are they gonna, is she gonna get pushed before she finally maybe would consider, you know, going against the religion and she never does. It's true. Which I think is, is pretty, I mean, I think it makes her an even come off as an even stronger character than she already is because she, she's, doesn't matter how far you push her, she's never going to, you know, go against what she believes, what her religious beliefs, you know, dictate that she should do. Yeah, and I think that Kira is one of the characters that really grows throughout this season. Like, if we look back to when we were talking about her in Emissary versus what we see here, we see that she's come a long way, and she still has a long way left to go. So I don't know that Kira gets enough credit as the number one. Uh, she is the second-ranking officer, and yeah, I don't know that she gets enough love from, you know, the general Star Trek populace. I think you're probably right. I, I think... She's a much stronger and much better character than a lot of people give her credit for. Now, I mean, one of the things that I think we have to talk about here is that, that we get round one of a very, very lengthy battle uh, of uh, the win Cisco, you know, verbal sparring matches. Uh, this is when they are completely fresh, completely new. They are just kind of... You know, they're just rope-a-doping. They're, they're feeling each other out. Um, we know that this is going to be a very long-fought battle between these two. What were your thoughts on the initial reaction uh, of Wynn versus Cisco? I thought it was a pretty good indication of things to come. Wynn sort of, I wrote down that she, you know, sort of made her classic veiled threat, you know, by saying, like, something bad is going to happen without actually saying something bad is going to happen. The other thing I noticed and that I wrote down was that Cisco was still very uneasy about that title of being the emissary. He still hadn't really grown into that at this point. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing that, you know, she mentioned that and he was like visibly uneasy about it still. Yeah, it hasn't really been mentioned, to be honest. It's one of the things that was a huge, huge part of the first episode and then wasn't really brought up. So it, it does fit in line with how he feels, especially when he goes to Bajor and they definitely treat him differently there. Um, he's seen, obviously, like, uh, you know, a voice to the prophets. And so when he goes to visit Boreal, you get the sense that, yeah, he's almost a celebrity like there. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I think maybe that's part of the reason why he was so uneasy about it, because he just didn't want all that added attention. Yeah, so I mean this is this is the episode, right? So the backlash of the schools not teaching Bajoran religion is that parents start pulling their kids out of the school. It, it starts to turn very hostile very quickly. Um, and uh, the Junga stick guy won't even sell 
Junga sticks to O'Brien anymore because his wife is the leader of the school. And you just got this building tension. What are your thoughts on you're not selling something to somebody because their wife goes against your beliefs? I don't even, is there a word for that? Yeah, it's called being a jerk. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That was kind of weird. Like, I, I don't know if it was, do you think it might have been just because O'Brien was human and the guy was just like, nope, I'm not selling to humans anymore because you guys are all blasphemous fools for not teaching religion or do you think it was because it was a keiko's husband i don't know i kind of got the sense that it was because it was keiko's husband because if you think about it if a klingon wants to buy a stick they don't believe in bajoran religion they probably don't give a they don't care about the wormhole aliens or any of that stuff either so in order to kind of make it fit and make it work i think it was just a slight on o'brien which is too bad because i feel like he was probably one of their best customers <laughs> certainly by the looks of things yeah that's like the second time in what 20 minutes of <laughs> the episode he's going and mowing down on a junga stick yeah daily junga stick but um yeah i think that they do a good job of slowly heating up the pot um and allowing it to boil over later and i think that this is uh again very realistic something that starts very innocuously with not being able to teach the religion in the school has all of a sudden really gotten everybody up in arms. And I mean, in today's society, in today's events, like that is exactly what happens. Things start, one little thing happens, and then the next thing you know, it's like the only thing that anybody's talking about. And it really grows and builds really quickly. And I feel like they captured that feeling in this episode uh, very well. Yeah, definitely. It seemed like a really kind of innocuous thing at first. And then, you know, like you say, things just sort of slowly build and then oh no o'brien can't get his junja stick like oh that you know and then next thing you know barile's on the station trying to like calm things down and it just you know it just kept building and building hey this is matt and you are listening to random trick review to get the latest podcasts and to read the rtr blog visit our website at randomtrekreview.blogspot.com you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes by searching for random trek review you can find us on social media, Twitter at Rando Trek Review, and on Instagram at Random Trek Review. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions and prefer old school email, feel free to drop us a line at randomtrekreview at gmail.com. Now back to the show. All right, Matt. Now, the uh, I feel like we talk about this a lot, but I, I it, it is worth mentioning is that Kai Wynn, or Vedic Wynn in this case, is the master of the bait and switch, you know, the look over here, stab you in the back kind of uh, dialogue. Uh, and it's the reason why she's so hateable. So there is a scenario where it's on the promenade and she starts telling Keiko, oh, you're such a wonderful teacher. The kids love being in your class and all stuff. It's all the, you know, the juicing up, the, 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 the buttering up. And then it flips around so quickly and it's just that dagger in the back where, you know, she, she basically, she's trying to use the, the conflict between them almost to, to bury it in a way. She actually suggests at one point that maybe, you know what, we just won't teach anything about the wormhole. Um, we will just completely ignore anything that has anything to do with the Bajoran religion, which Keiko then immediately, uh, you know, re reviews that, that, that mean, then you just have to do it with everything, evolution, the big bang, all these things. So what are your thoughts on 
I mean, I kind of gave you a lot there, but give me your thoughts just on Kai or Vedic win the master of the bait and switch. Um, and this idea to just kind of bury the stuff that is uncomfortable to talk about. Well, for that scene, I wrote down a classic two faced win moment when she is confronting Keiko. <laughs> like it's, it's so she's like saying one thing, but she really means something else. And it's so obvious that it's just like, Oh, why can't you just go away? You know, and and that's just classic Vedic win. I thought that scene was actually pretty solid, though, because Keiko stood her ground and she didn't, she, you know, she wasn't going to have anyone dictate, like, what she's going to be teaching in her school. She stood up for what she believed in. And I thought it was, like, pretty, it's like two juggernauts, really. I mean, the science versus the, the religion. It was pretty good, I thought. Yeah, they did a great job of this. And, I mean, this is something that still is holds true today right um there are lots of religious organizations that don't appreciate and don't like the fact that evolution is taught in schools um i think there are some states where it isn't taught in schools as, as well as a bunch of other things and it is yeah it, it's i think you mentioned it earlier but it's true it's just one of those things that we may never overcome it might just always be one of these things that 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 is part of humanity now do you think that's something that kind of holds us back as a society as a people if we can't at least agree to disagree i think it can certainly um i mean that's kind of a heavy question like are we ever gonna are we ever gonna just completely forget about religion i don't know um i don't know if we should uh that that's a pretty you know heavy philosophical question i think i mean that being said if you want to take the scientific approach they do show that the amount of people who are actively following religion and who are actively going to church and donating money and actively believing is on the decline it's one of the big things in a lot of religious communities where they are concerned that you know after a few more generations if this were to continue Um, there may not be very many religious followers left. And it's hard to say why that is, whether it's just, you know, there's too much other stuff to do, there's too much access to information, if it's just one of those things where the churches were maybe like too slow to to kind of change their thoughts on on certain things and or whatever it might be. But it's definitely interesting, this kind of push and pull. And it seems to me anyway, that the churches almost need to kind of go with the times otherwise they end up losing a lot of their follow followers or their their followship um which is funny because keiko in her next lesson which i thought was so perfectly done but also it i don't really know what her her syllabus looks like she's now teaching about galileo and how galileo you know discovered the uh the sun-centric solar system and how the churches basically ostracized him and, you know, he was imprisoned for life and everything like that. So I don't know how she got from one thing to the other, but, I mean, that's another great example, right, where, you know, somebody had proof of something. It went against what the the churches were saying at the time, but then eventually the churches did kind of change, right? They did adopt that that model once they were given enough information as much proof as they needed so i mean is that just going to take more time for for things to 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 fit through i don't know um there's just it's so much stuff 
that they crammed into this episode that, I mean, it's it's just so heavy. It was a very timely shift from uh, let's talk about the Bajoran wormhole to Galileo. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe the circumstances dictated that uh, lesson choice. I, I, I don't know. Teachable moments, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you kind of in line with what I'm kind of saying here? Or are you taking the other side of things or the other approach? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, where what part does religion have in, you know, the future of humanity? That's a tough question to answer. I mean, it's, uh, I guess we'll just have to find out. Um, do you think that you would be more apt to to be religious yourself if you knew that there was a physical thing that lived in a nearby wormhole because i mean one of the things that you know people on earth always kind of struggle with is that you know we have all these gods that people believe in different religions believe in different gods but it's not as if you actually ever get to see them it's a lot of times it's stories or it's feelings or it's visions um the bajorans are in a little bit of a different situation in the sense that like their gods actually exist they are actual things that uh, Cisco has gone in. He's talked to them. Um, they are real. Do you think that that would make you more likely to kind of follow religion if you knew for sure that they existed? Or, or do you think that it wouldn't really? Uh, that, that's a tough question. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I've got all the tough questions. When you start bringing in religion to a Star Trek podcast, it gets to be a, uh, yeah, these are like the nail biter questions. Yeah, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I'd have to be presented with that situation, I think, to be, be able to tell you what I would do. Yeah, I always kind of felt like the the Bajorans had a little bit more... Ah, I don't know if that's true. I was going to say that they had like a little bit more faith or like a little bit stronger faith when they were on the station just because they were like in such close proximity. But I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Um, I think that a lot of people maybe went there to practice religion just because... It's like literally the closest place that you can go to be near them. Does that, does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, I think that makes some sense. Yeah. All right. Well, let's kind of flip off of the religious stuff for a little bit. Cisco eventually goes to, you know, Bajorfornia, which is like, you know, California, Griffin Park, uh, to visit uh, Vedic Barail, who is uh, on Bajor tending to his garden. Why is it that I just don't like this guy? And I, 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 we've talked about Brile before in all the times where he's popped up, but there's nothing that's against, like, I don't really have anything against him. It's just like, I just don't like him for some reason. Well, I'm not sure I understand why. I actually quite like Vedic Brile, and I think we, we have talked about him before. He just has this, like, quiet slyness to him, and he's, like, just political enough that he, I, I just thought he was kind of an interesting, kind of soft-spoken, but quietly ambitious character and i mean we see it in this scene where he's talking to cisco about the situation and and he sort of quietly alludes to you know the the politics of involved in the upcoming election for the next kai and i i thought it was a really cool scene i thought the gardens looked really nice yeah no i think it was a good scene it's just that i don't like brile i guess maybe why does Homer Simpson not like Ned Flanders? <laughs> That's the reason why I don't like Vedic Barile. There's something about him, like he's too much of a goody-goody or, or, or something. You know, there's... It's like he's perfect or something, and, and because of that, I don't like him. Like, that's like he's Ned Flanders to me. Oh, well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
But anyway, he does bring up a really, really interesting and again, philosophical um, scenario where he actually says that the Federation is godless and that, uh, you know, Cisco is, is is maybe going to be the bridge between the godless Federation and the Bajoran people, which is a, kind of an opposite or, or at least uh, maybe a parallel to what we were talking about with Kira being the the bridge as well did you like his speech and uh did you resonate with it i thought it was okay i mean i didn't really even write anything down from it to be honest i didn't really think much of it the one thing that i really did like was he has a line where he says that we're all good at conjuring up enough fear to justify whatever we want to do and to me that was like it like very self-aware like he recognizes that the entire Bajoran religion. All you need to do is just kind of look at one thing one way or another thing another way, and it will justify the things that you're doing, which we then see Vedic Wynne taking to the extreme, where, you know, she's doing actively bad things, but in her mind, like, I really do think she thinks she's doing the right thing. Yeah, yep, I would totally agree with that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the other thing that is just tying into this is the, the whole interpretation of the aliens versus the prophets, because there's a scene with Cisco and Jake where Jake is 100% in the camp of they're just aliens, they're no special, more special than any other aliens that we've encountered. But Ben Cisco is a little bit more, I don't know, like he's a little bit more in the middle. And he kind of says by by breaking it down into something so simplistic, it's almost uh, insulting to the Bajorans and their religion. So yeah, we're getting a lot of different views on the same topic, and none of them are wrong. Uh, they're all very different, but it's very interesting to see how different people see the religion and the aliens and everything and how it turns out. I thought it was interesting that it was Captain or Commander Sisko that was the one who was like, okay, we need to look at this like from different angles. Because, you know, he's a guy who's been very uncomfortable with this religious title that he's been given. And yet he's still willing to like take his son aside and be like, hey, look, you know, you gotta, you can't just look at it from your own perspective. You gotta look at it in a different way. Which is very Star Trek. Like that's why he's the captain of the Star Trek show is because... He's willing to sit in the center and see both sides of it. Exactly. Yeah, it was that was a very cool scene. Yeah, no, it was really good. This is an episode filled with good scenes, all very talky scenes, too. There's not a lot of fighting or battles or anything like that. But the talking here is all really good. One of the things that I did think was kind of funny, though, was that Cisco drew the line at not showing up to work. It was like that good old capitalism. As soon as the Bajoran stopped showing up to work, that was where he was going to draw the hard line. And he's just telling them to look for a new career if they're not going to show up to work. Did you think that that fit with the themes of the episode? And do you think that it's fair to, you know, you can you can practice your religion, you can have your own beliefs, but once it starts factoring into your work, then you're out of here. That seemed like maybe it was a bit too far for me. Um, I had no problem with that. I thought it was actually pretty funny too. Like how, what, didn't he say something like, uh, they better like, someone's like, oh, they were, they're all sick today. And he's like, well, they better like get better soon or they're all going to have need new jobs or something like that. Isn't that how it went? Yeah, no, he was definitely like, he was strong arming them a lot more. I guess maybe because 
Do you think that he felt like they were just using it as an excuse not to work? Uh, maybe some of them, but I, I feel like m- the majority of them would legitimately be like protesting what was happening at the school. And I guess the other thing too is is that if he allows that, then it's going to really get out of hand really quick. Uh, you're probably right, yeah. <laughs> Especially since the security force is almost all Bajoran, is it not? A good chunk of it would be, I would imagine, yeah. Now, one of the things that I had completely forgotten and is way more interesting than than the one line that it gets is that basically the only reason why she came to the station, Vedic Wynn that is, is because that her power and her uh, influence on the planet has been slowly diluted over a period of time and to the point where she's not really very popular and she's kind of seen as more of like an outsider, maybe like a little bit uh, off the rocker. And so she thinks by going to the station, she can drum up some kind of more support that way where there's less people and she has more control over the situation. That is a fascinating idea and is a throwaway line, but I thought that it was a really good way to, to kind of explain her rationale, explain her reasoning for going. I'm maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but you left out the part where she also like masterminded this like bombing of the school and all, creating this whole situation in, in the first place as another reason why she went to the station. True, but I mean, I think that the reason why she did it on the station versus like in one of the provinces on the planet is because it would be a lot more publicized if it's on the station. Yep, that makes, yeah, I, I think you're right about that too. I'm sure that, people on Bajor are pretty tuned into what's going on on the station. Right. And because she was kind of running out of, like she was like, like basically she was, her star was falling on the planet. Like, I don't know how many Vedics there are, but it's kind of like a member of parliament or or a, a Senator or something basically. Right. And so by going to the station and being part of this huge news story, it really puts her in the spotlight, which I mean, she's the master of doing. Yeah, and I'm sure she engineered that whole thing as well. So yeah, this is this is certainly Kai Win being Kai Win. The other thing that like you you mentioned that she was masterminding it. I forgot that they blatantly showed that Win was the mastermind. I feel like in later seasons it's always kind of alluded to, it's maybe foreshadowed upon, but it's never like we get any more scenes where she's in a room with somebody saying yeah blow up the school you know it's for the profits and off you go i think that they later tried to make her more gray in this episode she's definitely the villain and she's definitely the wrong yeah and further episodes like you might you she might have like an accomplice but you might sort of in the back of your mind be like well was she really like getting that person to do these terrible things or did they just do it on their own like it wasn't as blatant as it was here yeah this is the one and there's really just the one scene where she makes it makes it very clear that she can't do it herself. She needs to, uh, Neela to do it because that's how the prophets have, have basically foresaw it or have, have called for it basically in the visions. So we, yeah, that brings us around to Neela actually because we've gone the whole episode without talking about her and she's kind of important. So O'Brien has this new assistant and she he is working with her on this kind of murder mystery. Somebody named Kino has been murdered and there's this whole side plot with the missing interlink they find his body in the jeffrey's tube and then they find out that he actually didn't die there he maybe died in the shuttle bay but it wasn't the one that they thought um what are your thoughts on this side 
plot murder mystery with Odo and O'Brien and his assistant. Uh, it was pretty obvious from the start that she was going to be like causing trouble later on because they really focused on her a lot and her sort of relationship with O'Brien and how she was, you know, so good at her job and so invaluable and and it just it seemed pretty obvious to me that she was going to be the one causing trouble at the end. But I thought the murder mystery was was kind of interesting. It was like there was enough mystery to keep you engaged throughout it, I th- I thought. Yeah, I think that we talked about this a couple episodes back where I was saying that, you know, even if you know how it's going to end, sometimes it doesn't matter if the story is so good. I mean, it was so obvious that she was the the person who was going to flip. She had just showed up randomly for this one episode. Anytime that they were ever mentioning anything, she was always in the background. Like there'd be times where Cisco would be talking about the school's been bombed and we don't know who did it. And then she would be standing slightly off camera where you could just see her in the background. Um, and she always seemed to be popping up in the locations where bad stuff was happening. But this is, I don't know, like this is, this doesn't bother me. I, I feel like trying to do the Scooby-Doo thing where it's some random person that you'd never expect would be like, would kind of take away from it in a way. I think that they set it up that it was going to be her and that, you know, they built this relationship between her and O'Brien. And then when she ends up being the, the lackey, I don't know. It worked for me. I think that the, the murder mystery plot was, was really well done here. And I mean, D space nine does the murder mystery thing a lot with Odo, but this time I felt like they did it really well. Yeah, they they kept like they kept throwing enough like snags and curveballs that it was interesting throughout the episode. Yeah. Now the other thing that's kind of interesting about it, do you? I mean, it, it's obviously taken from you know our culture, but basically, Kai Win says that you need to sacrifice yourself now for rewards that will last for eternity. Now, I do think that that is also kind of a, a, another look at you know some of our religions here on Earth, where you're promised all these great things in the afterlife. If you do X, Y, and Z, um, that's more, you know, like we, we, you hear a lot about that, like the nine 11, right? Like the terrorists who flew the planes, like they were promised all these things in the afterlife. I mean, this is years before nine 11 and they are kind of touching on that nerve, um, in this episode, I think. Well, yeah, that's, that's like a, I think that's a fairly common thing that, you know, people will do to try to manipulate others into doing what they want to do is say hey you know what you might not make it here but when you get to the afterlife you're gonna have it like you know you're gonna have it made you're gonna have all this you know all these things and all everything that you've ever wanted yeah and i i guess it's it's one of those things where it's it's true to life right we we see it happen here so when they show it in an episode like this it works um did you think that her trying to kill Burial was done a little bit too like 1990s there was like the slow-mo where she's walking through the crowd and she pulls the phaser and it's like the no dive was it a little bit much or did you think that it was good that was terrible i thought it was like the one (laughs) the one part of the episode where i was just like oh no why did they do this why did like it's just so stereotypical and so it's been done a million times like why would why did they do that i did not like it (laughs) It was it was a little bit cheesy, but I mean, I guess they needed an action piece for this episode, right? I guess. I mean, they they could have been done it a little differently, though. Yeah, it was a little bit on the cheesy side, and I mean, we don't get a cliffhanger. We talked about it a bit before, but you basically just end with Kira calling out Win, 
she doesn't deny it, which I thought was a little bit weird. Kira goes right to her and says, I know that you told her to do it. And Wynne just says kind of her, you know, religious-y, whimsical kind of thing. But she doesn't outright deny it. And we're just kind of left with this, uh, I don't even know what the feeling is. It's almost like this, like, weightiness. Like, oh, what's this going to mean for stuff going forward? Um, you don't get a true cliffhanger, but you do get... You get something. What, what, what is that feeling that you get when you watch the end of this episode? It's very ominous. There's like a, a feeling that, you know, things are coming that are not necessarily good, but you don't really know exactly what it is. It's almost reminiscent of actually the final season of the second, uh, or the final episode of the second season, which was the Jem'Hadar, which is when they encounter these, like, the Jem'Hadar, which are these brutal, awful warriors, and... and you don't really know what that means or what's going to come next, but you know that something bad is is on the horizon. Yeah, that's true, actually. It takes quite a few seasons before we get a true cliffhanger with Deep Space Nine. Uh, but then when we do get some cliffhangers, we get some doozies. So I guess it's worth the wait. All right, Matt, let's talk about the cast and characters here. Um, the first one is Vedic Wynn. Uh, we've talked about Kai Wynn before, but this is the first time we see her, and this is the one of the few times where she's a Vedic. Well, this is classic Vedic Wynn. I mean, uh, even from her first appearance, which we see here, like she's very much the the the, the Wynn that we know and despise, even from the start. Would you go so far as to say that she is the greatest Star Trek villain ever, or would you put her top three, top five, top ten, top twenty? Where would she fit for you? Very near the top, and I would also say that she's probably the, one of the most unlikable characters uh, that we've ever seen. I cannot stand Vedic Wynn. Yeah, I would. I she's in my top three for sure. Uh, when she, you know, when she forms the Ducat tag team, I think that's kind of the you know the ultimate. But yeah, she's really good, and it's amazing that they they got her so well this early on i mean she's a little bit more evil and a little less ambiguous here but pretty much hits the ground running she is the character that we are going to know for the next uh you know six seasons right from the bat which which is good and next up is uh vedic burial flanders <laughs> well you we've already talked a little bit about it but uh i've always been a i've always been a big fan of vedic burial i always felt like he um you know, I felt like he was a very eloquent and very well-spoken uh, character, and he, he had a good way with words, but he was also very soft-spoken and had this kind of humbleness to him, which I always thought was, was pretty good. Um, and here we he sort of is played as like kind of a more moderate religious figure. I mean, Kai Wynn is like the super mega, like orthodox kind of religious person, and Brile was... He, there was a lot of kind of contrast between how they were as religious folks. Yeah, I, I, for me, I feel like Baral, there's just nothing wrong with him. He is the typical goody two-shoes. You know, you find out later, you know, when he's with Kira that he's the great boyfriend and, you know, he's super jacked and handsome and he, he's, you know, phones his mother on Sundays and all the rest. Like, there's almost something about him that, and I feel like this is true of real life people too, where if somebody just seems so perfect and, and, and so good, too good to be true, 
it, there's always like an abrasiveness there. And that's what I always found with Brylock. I just didn't like him, and I don't know why I don't. It's just that it's it, the easiest way is it, honestly, he's it's just like Ned Flanders. There's no reason to dislike him, but I just can't stand the guy. I don't know why. <laughs> and I mean, Varyl's gonna only be around for another couple seasons, but I mean, we may pop in and see him throughout. It's almost like actually, we already saw Varyl, didn't we, at near the end when he he gives up himself to protect Opaka, right? Yep, we did. Yeah, so we have talked about Brile in the past. More of a one-note, one-episode character. What were your thoughts on Neela? Neela. Uh, it was very obvious that she was going to cause trouble from the start. I I don't really have much to say other than just kind of like a ordinary Bajoran who was tasked with causing mayhem by Kai Wynn. Did you think it was weird? She said at one point that she'd be put to death for attempting to assassinate a religious figure. That does not seem very Bajoran. Well, from the standpoint of them being kind of a traditional type of civilization, then maybe they could, I could buy that. Yeah, maybe. I just, it seemed like a little bit harsh. Um, and I, obviously she never comes back. They just get, she gets dragged away and that's it. Thanks a lot, Vedic Win. Now she gets to like spend the whole life in prison. Yep. <laughs> this is uh, Colmini's favorite episode from season one. Uh, that garden was in Griffith Park. Uh, and maybe more interesting, this takes place seven months after uh, Emissary. Uh, it's a, in a piece of dialogue that uh, Benjamin Sisko mentions. Does that seem like a lot of stuff happened in the course of seven months when you go back and you look through the 20 episodes of Deep Space Nine season one? Would you want to live on a station where there's this much hustle, this much bustle? Yeah, it's definitely a busy place, and a lot of uh, shenanigans uh, took place in that first seven months. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, pretty significant events. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where it's really great television, but if you actually lived on a station where you're, you know, you're going to get blown up weekly, you're getting abducted by aliens, you're getting in phaser fights. I feel like it maybe not is not super conducive to family life and to a stress-free life as well. It's definitely exciting. Nobody's arguing that. It'd be very chaotic, I think. Definitely. It's just like every day there's some new thing that's going to come about. And the last kind of piece of production is just that uh, there's a line that Wynn says where uh, Kyle Paca once told her that you shouldn't look God in the eyes. And that was from a deleted scene uh, from Emissary. So Kyle Paca was going to be an Emissary. And she was going to have a line like that. And it got cut. So they just added it in here, which is a nice little connection, a nice little tie, especially since uh, Opaka is long gone from the series at this point. Yeah, that's an interesting little little piece there that they would uh, put that put that line back in from a from a deleted scene. Good, good use of uh, deleted material. Indeed. Yeah, I don't need to write anything new. Just use the old stuff. Uh, all right, hit me up with your memorable scene, your favorite quote, your favorite bit. Okay, I'm going to go with, there's two lines that I wrote down and, and highlighted that I thought were pretty good. So the scene where Beryl and Cisco are in the garden, uh, you know, Beryl's sort of walking Cisco through all these, like, politics, and, and uh, you know, Beryl's talk then says something about, uh, you know, things that they're taught by the by the prophets and cisco goes it appears they also teach you politics and Brile kind of like smirked at that which i thought was kind of funny and then there's a line where they're um they're talking about that akino guy while odo and and everyone else is trying to like unravel this murder mystery and they're like 
geez, what was he doing at Runabout Pad C at uh, 5 o'clock last night? And Odo goes, apparently he was getting murdered. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good, too. I thought that was a good one. Where, what do you uh, what do you want to throw out here at us? Uh, I do like that line that I mentioned earlier with uh, being good at conjuring up enough fear to justify what you want to do. Um, there's also a thing, you know how they grab the ears? Uh, there was a scene where uh, Beryl said that he would squeeze the paw out of you, which I thought was good. But my favorite line is actually a Quark line. Uh, Quark's not in this a whole ton, but he, he does get a great line when the or- Orthodox Bajorans show up. Uh, Quark tells Odo that those spiritual types love those Dabo girls, which um, (laughs) I thought was a great line. So that is going to be my favorite quote from this episode. What are your final thoughts? And then give me a rating out of five Bajoran Prophets. I thought it was really good. Um, There was some some really interesting uh, themes that they explored throughout it. And uh, I thought there was some really cool scenes uh i thought the murder mystery kind of in the background was intriguing enough to keep you going throughout the episode they kind of threw some twists and and some turns as much as i despise kai win uh, she always makes her the episodes that she's in are generally pretty interesting because she's always up to something um so yeah i thought and it, it was a pretty good way to wrap up season one and and sort of set up some some things that would continue on through season two and really throughout the series. So, um, yeah, I thought it was really good overall, and I'm going to give it a rating of uh, four Bajoran Prophets out of five. Very good. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that they touched on a lot of really interesting things here. The Obviously, the two different schooling systems, the Bajoran religion stuff is really great. We didn't talk about it a lot, but they do a really good job of depicting religious figures as celebrities, both Cisco as well as the Vedics and the Kai are all kind of seen as celebrities, which is really interesting. I like how they tied it into the Pope, especially from, you know, 15th, 16th century uh, Rome. I think that they do an excellent job of making the murder mystery side plot just just enough. Um, there's some funny lines. There's some serious dialogue. There is good discussion. I feel like they gave every character something to do. And they had a good use of every character as well. And I, I just love this episode. At, at the risk of maybe seeming like a Deep Space Nine mark, I think I got to give this one five out of five Bajoran Prophets. This is not my favorite season finale. It's not my favorite Deep Space Nine episode. But the thing is, is that they just got everything about it perfect. So, I mean, even though there are better episodes, there's nothing in this episode that I can say that is bad. Everything that they do just fits so nicely. And when I'm watching this, I'm taking so much more and it's making me think and it's giving me lots of stuff to talk about and lots of stuff to chew on, which is exactly what I want for my Star Trek. So this is the exact kind of episode that I absolutely love. All right, Matt, it uh, it seems like only yesterday that we, uh, you know, started this thing. And now we are at the end of season two, which is just absolutely crazy. But of course, that means that uh, we get to have a little respite from our recalls. We get to sit back, pop some popcorn, do a little bit of celebrating and, of course, draw a Star Trek film that we will review over the next four weeks. Are you excited? Can you believe it's been two years already? That's pretty crazy. I, uh, yeah, it's been, it's true what they say. Time flies when you're having fun. And so here we are after uh, two years of 
way too much fun here on uh, RTR. Do you have any preferences, wishes, hopes, dreams, thoughts, prayers about what movie you'd like to see this year? Anything that is not J.J. Abrams related, (laughs) which I think is probably what I said last time too. Probably. All right. Well, I'm going to dig into the special three-tiered Bajoran hat of movies that uh, I've got right here. And I'm going to try just pull out something not JJified. All right. Well, this is an interesting one, um, especially since when I looked at it, I thought maybe that I had pulled out like the table of contents or something, because we will be watching Star Trek, which, if you recall, was actually the name of the 2009 J.J. Abrams movie. So we will be watching the first movie in the J.J. Abrams uh, trilogy, which was Star Trek. And I kind of forgot about that. There was no additional tag on, was there? That's true, yep. Your worst nightmare is being realized. Uh, You are going to have to go and revisit 2009 Star Trek. Now, I mean, I think most people agree that's probably the best of the bunch, but uh, when was the last time that you saw Star Trek 2009? Oh, boy. I don't know, 2009? I, I mean, I've seen it one time since, but I can't recall when that was. I have seen this movie one time. I went and I saw it in theaters on opening weekend back in 2009, which unbelievably was 11 years ago, and I have not sat back down and seen it. So we will have lots to discuss. So Matt, you pop the popcorn, I will grab the DVD, and uh, everybody make sure to join us back in two weeks' time when we look at J.J. Abrams' Star Trek 2009. (laughs) Thank you.